Welcome to Into the Fire, a Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series. Hi, this is Jerome Davis. I'm the Artistic Director of Burning Coal Theater Company in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I'd like to welcome everyone to Into the Fire, the Burning Coal Theater Company podcast series on all things theatrical. Burning Coal will be opening a play called Malima's Tale by the two-time Pulitzer Prize winning playwright Lynn Nottage, January 26th through February 12th in Raleigh. And uh, one of our uh, things that we wanted to do in support of that production is to talk with someone who knows a bit about the, um, the subject matter of the play, in this case, Elephants, and I think the environment is a, is a subtle um, subject of Miss Nottage's play as well. So to that end, uh, we have the Director of Education, Science, and I think I left one out, Richard. Sorry, what is, say that one more time for me. Conservation, Education, and Science. Conservation. So Richard, welcome to Into the Fire, and thank you for doing this. We appreciate it. The uh, North Carolina Zoo uh, is in Asheboro, um, and you, uh, you can you tell us just a little bit about that, about what the zoo's mission is and uh, when it got started, who started it, and that sort of thing? Sure, yeah. So the, the North Carolina Zoo is one of only two state-run zoos in the country. Um, we are uh, an agency of the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, and we have um, a couple of uh, areas of focus and sort of a, a, two, two joint missions. You know, one is to provide uh, education and educational opportunities to the people of North Carolina, but the other is to be actively engaged with the conservation of wildlife, both here in North Carolina and internationally. And so we, in addition to the zoo, which many of your listeners might be familiar with, may have visited, I hope, um, where you can come and see animals like elephants, like rhinos, um, like lions, other species from Africa and from North America. Um, in addition to the zoo, our staff work across our state to preserve wildlife and wildlife habitat, and also internationally, particularly in Africa, to, um, to, to, to engage in activities that help to prevent the extinction of endangered species. And for those who haven't visited the zoo, uh, where where is it in relation to Raleigh? It's it's west of us, uh, uh, past Greensboro, I think. It is so. So uh, Ashboro and the North Carolina Zoo are in basically the geographic center of the state. Um, we're about forty minutes south of Greensboro, about an hour west of Raleigh Durham, about an hour fifteen minutes north of Charlotte. So, so we like to say that the zoo is equally inconvenient for everybody. It's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know, it, joking aside though, it's very easy to get to. Um, and part of the reason why it was cited where it was uh, when, when it was being designed or conceived of in the early seventies was because that was where there was a lot of land available. And one of the great things about the North Carolina Zoo in addition to the, the conservation stuff that we do um, around the world is we are, in terms of land area, the largest zoo in the US. We have over 2,000 acres of both um, developed animal habitats that people can come and visit, and then also just wild lands, wildlife habitat, hiking trails, and so on, 
um, that, that people can also come and enjoy. So we have a, a network of hiking trails in addition to the trails at the zoo that get you out in the, in the wilderness of, of central North Carolina and allow you to see uh, North Carolina's wildlife. The, uh, the extra um, square footage uh, gives the animals more room to roam too, I presume. Yeah, that's uh, right. We, we have uh, one of the kind of guiding principles of the zoo is that we provide animals habitats that are as large and as natural as we can possibly provide in, in the context of a, of a zoo in the U.S. So, for example, our um, rhino and African antelope habitat is over 40 acres in size, and that's bigger than most city zoos. That's bigger than the entire Philadelphia Zoo, for example. Uh, and that allows, yeah, the animals to lead very natural lives, just kind of do their own thing without a lot of intervention from us, and allows our visitors to come and see and appreciate them in a, in a very sort of natural context. When the, when the zoo was being um, established, uh, so was was the state government uh, responsible for that? Was that an act of, of governance uh, or or was yeah. there an individual driving it or a combination of those things? So there was a, a, a group of um, North Carolinians who decided that the, zoo, the North Carolina at the time didn't really have a, a zoo in the state. And they said the, that the North Carolina should have a zoo. And so they... Um, that was what became eventually became the North Carolina Zoological Society, which is the organization that that supports the zoo. They secured the land and then approached the state to um, to create the zoo, um, and and then the state agreed to engage in that process. And eventually, through very various different, we've lived in various different parts of the of state government um, until. The current day where we are now in the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources, which includes things like the Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh, um, the Art Museum in Raleigh, state park system, uh, things like that. Burning Coal uh, receives funding from the North Carolina Arts Council every year, which is also part of that same uh, um, uh, umbrella. Um, it, it, you've talked about uh, your work internationally. Uh, can you talk about some of that more specifically and who some of your partners are? Sure. Yeah. So um, my background, I, I am by training a gorilla biologist. I did my PhD studying gorillas in West Africa um, and along with many of the other staff here work in different countries in Africa, um, basically applying different scientific techniques to help make conservation, wildlife conservation work, work better in different African countries. So for example, one of our flagship projects uh, involves the creation of, we, we helped to create a software platform that allows people working in national parks and other protected areas in Africa and around the world um, to record, analyze, and act on data collected by rangers when they're out on patrol. Uh, in order to make anti-poaching efforts uh, more successful, more effective. As the, the play, Malima's Tale, um, illustrates the poaching of wildlife, elephants especially, but, but lots of other species like rhinos, uh, lions, um, most, most large wildlife are, are, are poached to, to one extent or another. Um, poaching is, is really the, the number one threat to the survival of a lot of these species. And the people who are responsible for um, protecting them often don't have 
the tools, whether they are um, physical tools like uh, vehicles or, um, or, or, or equipment like boots or um, tools like analysis tools to, to, to help inform the actions that they're taking, often those tools aren't, aren't, aren't available. And so we train people, everybody from rangers to the heads of national parks departments, how to use this uh, analysis tool, which is called SMART. You can find out more about it online at smartconservationtools.org. Um, we train them how to use that to collect information using smartphones about poaching, about wildlife, about where, where they're taking action, and then to put all that together in an analysis that allows them to develop strategies to uh, reduce or and hopefully totally prevent poaching of species like elephants. There's a somewhat, at least to my layman's ears and eyes, a disturbing article in The Guardian today about, um, I think they're pronounced vervet or vervet monkeys in, in the Caribbean. Have you have you noticed, have you seen that yet, St. Martin? Um, I, I haven't seen that specific article, but I am I am familiar with, uh, with vervet monkeys. Um, vervet monkeys, interestingly, are an African monkey that was uh, introduced by people to the Caribbean. Um, so they're not they're not native to 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 that island, um, but they have become I think sort of a, a draw for tourism and and a, at least for some people a, a source of of pride as a sort of um, as a as a highlight of a, of, a, of a visit to to there. So it's an interesting it's an interesting issue when when an introduced species starts to starts to, to, to get into trouble. Um, but at the zoo, what we do is really focus on um, trying to conserve species in their natural habitats, where, where, where they're from originally. So as I've been saying, elephants in different countries in Africa, uh, lions, gorillas, rhinos, things like that. Well, apparently the plan by the government down there is to exterminate them all together. Which ah, okay. Sounds like a... a a, a, a draconian measure, uh, to say the least. Uh, well, it's a, uh, it, it, it is an interesting issue. What do you do when um, a non-native species is is introduced, yeah. and, and what what problems they can they can cause? Certainly, you see that in places like Australia with the introduction of rabbits, where they really mm -hmm. decimate local flora and fauna. Um, the zoo actually works on a project in the uh, in the Pacific Ocean where. Uh, a snake has been introduced to these islands in, in, in the Pacific and the native birds there have no defense against the snake because they, they, they didn't evolve with the snake. And so the snake has really pushed almost to extinction several bird species um, on these islands where, where it was introduced by people. So, yeah, well, I'm not familiar with the, the specific plan in the, in the Caribbean to deal with vervet monkeys. I can imagine how vervet monkeys might be um, they can be, uh, having experienced them firsthand, they can be a, a somewhat uh, mischievous, let's say, uh, yeah. monkey, getting into people's houses, eating people's crops, um, yeah. can be, and they can be very aggressive too. Right. Um, so for uh, switching gears just a little bit, for somebody uh, listening to this and thinking, wow, that's what I want to do with my life, um, tell us just a little bit about how you came to this field um, who were your heroes, um, and uh, and if you have any advice on a young person for a young person who might want to uh, pursue a similar path? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's lots of different ways to, to, to get into conservation biology is sort of broadly the, the, the field that I'm in. Um, I actually, I followed a sort of non-traditional route. I started my career as a zookeeper at a zoo in Chicago. Um, but by virtue of working with African primates like gorillas um, and, and, and monkey species, um, I got more and more interested in their plight in the wild. Uh, and so I left my, my job as a zookeeper and went back to graduate school to, to study gorillas in the wild um, with a particular focus on how we can use science to better understand what's going on with a, with a wild population of animals and how that can inform conservation activities to make, to make conservation action more effective. Um, you know, I'm, I've been inspired by uh, a, a lot of different people, um, particularly people from um, African countries who's, who's, who spend their entire lives trying to, to protect wildlife. Um, it's not a, whether you're doing it in the US or doing it in, in Africa or anywhere in the world, Wildlife conservation is not a lucrative profession um, for many people, particularly rangers working on the ground. It can be a very dangerous profession. Um, yeah. But a lot of these, but these, but the, these people who are working to protect animals like the elephant represented in in, in the play of Burning Coal uh, are really putting their lives on the line to to protect them from from poaching and 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 other threats. And so um, that's the sort of Rather than an individual person, it's it's kind of a class of people who 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 really inspired me to to pursue this kind of work. The people who are sort of selflessly giving of themselves to to try and and make the list at the risk of sounding kind of whatever cliche like make the world a better place. Um, and there's a lot of people, um, yeah, who I think are very deserving of recognition, uh, other than me, who are. Who are working in Africa to to prevent exactly the kind of thing that's that's represented in your play, which is the the killing of of elephants and, and other wildlife for to to get wildlife products for sale. Right. Um, it seems to me that, that as our um, as our populations move more and more toward an, an urban um, way of living, um, that the interaction, direct interaction with with animals, will decrease. And, and has decreased, and and that that that, that breaking that uh, uh, trajectory might be a, a key to 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 better um, protecting animals and the environment. And I know the zoo does a lot of work in education and with young people, getting people to the zoo, getting them fa face to face with the animals and that sort of thing. Is that is that the the basic idea behind that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right on a couple of levels. I mean, certainly one of the things that we try to accomplish with a visit to the zoo is to give people to try to create a connection between people and animals, people and wildlife, people and the outdoors, um, which perhaps they wouldn't get in our increasingly urban society in right. the U.S. Uh, I mean, in, in addition to the wildlife side of it, we have programs that encourage kids just to spend time outside out in the woods to to get their their hands dirty and and play in the outdoors in a way that is is less and less common nowadays. Um, but equally, I think, and this is uh, I think very relevant for some of the themes that are that are in in, in the play. Um, some often the some of the consumers of wildlife products like ivory 
have a have a similar disconnection from from wildlife and and from and from um, the sources of these products uh, that they're consuming. And there's been uh, work done in places like China and Vietnam, which are among the the major consumers of things like ivory and rhino horn, um, where people who are buying these things, where which are considered, which are both like very expensive and and real status symbols, didn't realize. For example, in the case of elephant ivory, m- many of them didn't realize that the elephants were actually killed to get the ivory. Um, right. They just assumed that it was harvested sustainably, or that or that it grew back, or that it was picked up off the ground. That it fell that the that it fell off the elephants and, and somebody collected it. Yeah. Um, and so, in the same way that we can at the zoo educate people about wildlife and help to create those connections with nature, equally in the long term, if we're going to solve some of the 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 problems um, like the poaching of wildlife, um, I think we have to do the same thing with the with, with the the consumers of, of that wildlife. And uh, and there's there has been increasingly work done in places like China and Vietnam to to change people's perspectives on on ivory and rhino horn and other animal products uh, in the same way that we try to uh, foster a, an appreciation for wildlife here in, in North Carolina at the zoo. There's some there's something innate uh, about um... Uh, a, a child's love or interest in um, animals that I think is, is typified by the degree to which um, animals are central characters in children's stories. You know, we sort of take that for granted, but there's, there's no reason particularly why um, that should be the case. I'm thinking of Winnie the Pooh, the Roadrunner, uh, Lassie, yeah. the Three Bears, the Three Little Pigs, Big Bird. You know, it goes on to sure. a, a huge list of uh, these stories in which children are taught uh, parables or, or stories that are helpful to them as they mature um, through the lens of, of animals. And and I I guess is do you think that is does that come from our our rural past, you know, our, our less urban past, is that sort of genetically wired into it? Do you think? Um, I don't, I don't, that, that goes a, a little bit beyond my area of expertise, looking at the origins of, of that, but I certainly can, uh, I, I certainly agree with you that, that, that it seems to be a common, that seems to be in common, not just in, in Western culture and the kinds of stories that you talked about, but certainly in play, other parts of the world where I've worked, a lot of traditional stories in, for example, West Africa, have animals as the as the central characters, and a lot of sort of folk tales will use animals like the turtle and the lion and others to re- to represent things. And so, um, yeah, I think there is uh, at least some commonality in in the human experience where where we we somehow relate to animals or or have some kind of connection with them. That um, that is, I mean, it's tough to say that anything is universal, but 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 is is a, a, a pr- approaching universal, perhaps. And even among, I mean, for example, the work that I've done in West Africa, I worked a lot with people who were hunting wildlife, who were who were hunting animals in the forest for um, for consumption. And even those people have a very strong appreciation for the animal and, and particularly older people talk about how, and these are older hunters, people who are actively out hunting wildlife talk about how, even though they're hunting wildlife, they don't want to see 
a future where their grandchildren are living around a forest where there aren't any animals. They, they, so there's this duality between, yes, on my, I'm, I'm, I'm hunting animals for my livelihood, but equally I appreciate their value, not just to me economically, but their kind of inherent value as, um, I don't know, kind of like natural heritage um, for, for their communities, for their families and so on. It's such a difficult argument uh, to, to make. I was thinking of also of Anansi the spider, sure. uh, a famous, uh, I think, West African uh, folk yep. uh, legend. Yeah. Um, but um, the, you know, to, and we see it in the arts too. It's it's where where your work and mine over uh, intersect. I think is that idea of convincing people, you know, of intrinsic value when the um, the conflicting value is putting food on the table that night or, right. or paying the electric bill or or sending your child to college or something like that. But in many cases, certainly in the case of the ivory trade, it's really, you know, the end, the end result of that um, trajectory is somebody wanting to look nice, you know, while they wear a tusk or something like that, which is not the same thing as as being hungry or or being um, right. uh, unclothed or something like that. So, um, Richard, is there anything else you'd like to say before we wrap up today about your work or the work of the the museum? Uh, the, I keep saying that of the zoo. That's all right. Um, uh, or um, or anything uh, anything about uh, conservation uh, that we haven't talked about that you think is important for people to go out with. Yeah, maybe maybe two things. I mean, just following on what you were saying earlier, I think it is important to emphasize and to encourage people to think about the intrinsic value of nature and wildlife. We we, we get a, we get a lot out of the presence of nature and wildlife, independent of its economic value. And and certainly, if you look at here in the U.S., the creation of the national park system. So the national parks were are the are an American idea. They they were first created in the U.S. And they were created specifically to protect nature for its own sake, not because it was going to make money, not because somebody would be able to go hunting there, but but because we collectively believe that 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 the preservation of these natural wonders and the places and the wildlife um, it ha- has has its own value. And I think I think we we have Teddy Roosevelt to thank for exactly, that. Yeah, exactly, I mean, exactly. Who was, um, who was, who was a barbaric hunter, uh, <laughs> but but also did this thing, which is one of the great dichotomies of yeah. People are people are complicated creatures. Um, so so yeah, I would certainly advocate for not just here, but but around the world the the, the idea that you know that, that that while we should look for ways that national parks or other other wild places around the world can help to generate uh, money and be economic engines of development for um, for the communities that live in and around them, we should also be promoting them for their own intrinsic value. Um, and then secondly, I think th- some of the th- some of the themes in in Malima's tale can be simultaneously very compelling to to, to, to audiences in North Carolina. Um, but also feel very removed, and and it's certainly something that that we deal with in in the zoo profession as a whole. Is that people agree with a lot of the things that we're saying, but they say, "Well, I don't hunt ivory, I don't own ivory, I don't buy ivory. So what can I really do to to be part of the solution?" And and I say this not, not as a 
as a, as a sales pitch for the zoo, but as a, as a way to perhaps get people to think differently about what a visit to the zoo means. And because we are directly involved with doing conservation in places like Africa, but also here in North Carolina, um, and because uh, we are supported entirely by the zoo visitor and zoo members and, and donations to the zoo, just the action of, of coming to the zoo, having a good time with your family, um, seeing the animals, hopefully learning something while you're here, is actually directly contributing to the conservation of species like elephants. And while you know most most of your of your um, uh, the people who are going to be coming to see the play probably aren't consuming ivory, um, they may also feel like there isn't much they can do to to prevent it. But what I'd encourage them to do, not because you know not not trying to sell a zoo again, but but because it is a way that you can actually take a a small but meaningful action on behalf of wildlife is, is to come to the zoo, um, support the work that we're doing, and um, and also learn something about about animals like elephants and, and wildlife. Can people uh, take photographs while they're there? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So so they can uh, they can spread it. Uh, not only can they come themselves, but they can spread it to hundreds or thousands of of other people as well. Well, I'm going to go as soon as the weather gets over. <laughs> what am I talking about? It's 70 degrees. Today. Right, it's not too bad today. This is the yeah. best time of best time of the year to visit the zoo. It's nice it and cool, uh, not too busy. So yeah. Well, I, I will be there, and I hope everybody listening will. What is your website, Richard? Uh, NCZoo.org. Perfect. Uh, Dr. R uh, Dr. Richard yeah. Bergel, um, who is the Director of Conservation, Education, and Science at the North Carolina Zoo. Thank you for joining Into the Fire today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Take care. Thank you for listening. Burning Coal Theater's production of Malima's Tale will be presented January 26th through February 12th. Tickets and more information are available at burningcoal.org or at 919-834-4001. Malima's Tale is sponsored by The Classical Station. Listen online at theclassicalstation.org or 89.7 FM. <laughs>